Well, good morning. We want to welcome you to our Systematic Theology Lesson 12 on Common Grace and Election. I want to thank you for your faithfulness and being here today as uh, I am currently, presently in uh, the great country of India on a mission trip. Please pray for us and we thank you for, for doing that. I'm very excited about the um, lesson today. Uh, no doubt this is one of the most controversial, if not the most controversial and divisive doctrine in our Southern Baptist Convention and maybe for the entire evangelical world. So I want to begin uh, with a word of humility that I do not know all the answers. Uh, there's probably more I don't know than I do know, uh, but I want to approach this uh, with humility and just asking God for his wisdom. So let me do that now. Let me, let me pray for you and pray for this uh, lesson. Father, we love you very much and we thank you that you're awesome, you're eternal, and you exist as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You've given us your word, and it's the very word of God, without any error, without any uh, fallacies. Or, and so, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that we have the word of God. Please help us interpret it properly. Uh, bless us today. God, open our minds and our hearts this morning that we would understand uh, what the Scripture teaches us about these doctrines of election and predestination and Lord, I just uh, lift this prayer to you, thanking you in advance for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, this is going to be fun. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. I believe God is really going to speak to us uh, and encourage us. Let me do give you this word about humility, however. Um, as you approach the doctrine of election and predestination, I do want you to have a posture of humility because if you're Arminian or if you are Calvinistic in your, uh, your leanings and your beliefs, um, I promise you, you don't have a monopoly on this truth. It is too mysterious. And uh, one of the critiques I have of, of people who have it all systematized and all organized, it leaves no room for ambiguity, leaves no room for mystery. And so I want you to approach this with humility, with, with meekness, and say, God, I don't have all the answers, even though I'm strongly an Arminian or I'm strongly a Calvinist. I hope that you will still have an element of mystery and an element of, of humility uh, about you. Uh, when I was in graduate school at Southwestern Seminary, I remember my theology professor, Dr. James Leo Garrett, a uh, brilliant man of God. Um, he had us argue and debate uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I remember he divided the class up and he had us debate an entire class period. And then after we had debated and uh, we had shared our strong convictions of whatever side we were on, and uh, he finished up by saying, well, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the debate. Um, and he closed class with these words. He said, holy tension, class dismissed. So he didn't elaborate. He just said, there is a mystery here. There is a tension here. When you're talking about the divine sovereignty of God and the freedom, the, uh, the volition of, of human, humankind, humanity, he just said, there's a holy tension. You can't figure it out completely. And so he dismissed the class. So... Um, it's interesting to me that our two best theologians in the Southern Baptist Convention, in my opinion, Dr. Paige Patterson and Dr. Al Mohler, they both see this differently, very differently, and yet they are very good friends like George Whitfield and John Wesley in the First Great Awakening were wonderful friends and yet strongly disagreed with one another, especially when it comes to election, predestination, and um, foreknowledge where Dr. Patterson places a great emphasis on foreknowledge, as I do. Uh, others in the more mainline Calvinist reform tradition will not place as much emphasis on prognosis, is the Greek word, and we'll look at that 
in a little while when we get deep into uh, the, the lecture. In Christian Beliefs, in your small book, in your, in your textbooks, uh, Grudem ends his chapter with common grace, okay? But in the Systematic Theology book, he begins with common grace, and I'm going to follow the method uh, that he follows in the larger uh, textbook. So, in other words, I'm going to start with common grace, even though your books end with it in this chapter, and then we will end with the doctrine of election. So, first of all, common grace. Uh, what is uh, common grace? It refers to the blessings that God gives to all mankind unrelated to salvation. So, this whole doctrine of, of sovereignty and election and predestination it all really centers on the divine will of God and God's grace and God's goodness. So common grace is the goodness of God that he gives to all of us unrelated to uh, salvation. When a person sins, he or she is not immediately judged and sent to hell. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, as a lost person, they, they sin, let's say they're cognizant of their sin, the very first a thing that they do is in violation against God. And God does not kill them. God does not zap us. And Grudem says that's because of his common grace. He extends that grace to all uh, mankind. He says they, he allows them to live on this earth, in some cases for decades, and enjoy the innumerable blessings of God, even though they don't know God, they don't recognize God, <clears throat> they don't honor God. God does not <clears throat> send them to hell immediately, but he gives them uh, grace. Let me give you some examples of common grace. Number one is in the physical realm. Uh, the very air that we breathe is from God. The earth does not produce just thorns and thistles and briars, but the earth produces everything that we need to live uh, and to live uh, comfortably. It provides food and materials for our shelter and for our clothing. For example, Matthew 5, 44 and 45 talks about this. It says, but I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do not... Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And they persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and uh, the unjust. An example of an unbeliever being blessed in the Scriptures um, is the example of Potiphar in Genesis chapter 39, verse 5, where the Bible says, And God blessed... Potiphar and everything that he had, all that he possessed, God blessed him, even though he did not know Yahweh or follow Yahweh, God blessed him uh, because of Joseph, Joseph being in his uh, house. Unbelievers also get to enjoy the amazing beauty of God's creation. Think about a sunset, a sunrise, an ocean, a mountain, all of this amazing beauty and complexity that God has made, and he allows believers and unbelievers to enjoy it. And, and Grudem says that's an example of the physicality of common grace, God's grace given to us. Number two is intellectual. Mankind is able to grasp truth and process, rationalize, reason, engage in syllogism and logic, and all of these intellectual blessings of mankind is another example of common grace. In fact, the Bible says in John 1, 9 that God gives light to every man born into this world. He is able to know about God. Now, he can use his, his mind and, and say, wow, you know, how did this come about? And God will speak through general revelation. We've talked about this before through nature, through past events, history, and through the uh, conscience or the moral compass of man and all of these are given to us as God reveals himself out of, his, out of his goodness. And Grudem says that science and technology 
All of it carried out by non-Christians is a result <clears throat> of, common, of common grace, okay? Number three, an example of common grace would be in the moral realm, the moral realm. Common grace restrains mankind from being more evil than we, than we actually are. Paul speaks of the conscience of man in Romans chapter 2, 14 and 15, where he states that the law is written on our hearts and our conscience bears a witness. Uh, we have this innate sense of right uh, and wrong. Uh, I think it's one of the powerful arguments for the existence of God is the moral argument for the existence of God. Where did this come from? How did we, how did we get to this point where we can process what is right and what is wrong? An example of common grace in the moral realm is we do not plummet to the depths of uh, depravity. Even unsaved men can write laws that protect uh, innocent lives and prohibit, for example, theft. Uh, God blesses those who are honest and work hard and faithful to their families. And it's just a common law, if you will, that God punishes those who commit sins against mankind and themselves. Number four is creative. Some examples of the common grace of God lavished upon mankind, uh, not only in the physical realm, but also in the intellectual realm, the moral realm, and now in the creative realm. The ability that man has to create, uh, to play athletics, if you will, to, uh, to play a, a musical instrument, to exhibit expertise and skill in a particular area, and some would argue, well, God doesn't have anything to do with that. I did that. I earned that. I made all of those decisions, and I... I practiced all of those hours. That's why I'm such a great concert violinist, or that's why I'm such a great athlete. And I think people miss it entirely when they do that because it is the very grace of God that enables them to do uh, what they do. I think about Tiger Woods, arguably the greatest golfer to ever play. Think about Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player to ever play, and LeBron James. None of those men would recognize God. They would not recognize that God is sovereign over all and he has dispensed this grace to them and given them these innate wonderful abilities to, to play athletics. And yet, it is God. It is God who has given them everything that they possess, whether they recognize it or not. Another example of God's common grace to mankind, unrelated, okay? Remember common grace definition? It is all the blessings and benefits to mankind that are unrelated to specific salvation in Jesus Christ. Another example would be societal. In society, the human family, for example, provides wonderful blessings to all believers and unbelievers. Human government. Human government is another example of societal common grace. Think about Romans uh, chapter 13, verse 1, where, where it talks about that all the governments are created by God. Here it is. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And, <clears throat> and the authorities that exist are appointed uh, by, by God. Uh, he instituted, he created this whole concept of government and law and order. Now, of course, there are despots, there are uh, totalitarian regimes, there are twisted versions of authority, obviously, that God is not in that, but God created government for the good of mankind. I think about police and laws, judicial system. These are all graces that benefit uh, mankind. Let me give you some more examples, or let me uh, tell you what Grudem says some more examples are. Better say it like that. Uh, schools, businesses, charitable groups, all of these things that we often take for granted, but these are gifts from 
gifts from God. I, I think about it, again, this is such a powerful argument for deity, uh, for God, for, for theism, if you will. Uh, you think about how we are able to congregate in groups and how we are able to uh, play athletics or play uh, a musical instrument or we are able to come together to accomplish so much in a charitable group. And I ask, where did that come from? How does evolution instill in us this creative ability to gather sociologically in groups and to accomplish so much? And, uh, and I look at the apes. Why do we still have apes? Monkeys cannot, they cannot do that because God has created us, especially in his image and given us these common graces. Let me, let me give you one more, and it's called the religious, uh, the religious example of God's common grace. Unbelievers, uh, unbelieving leaders, if you will, are blessed as a result of the prayers of God's people. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, we are called upon to pray for those in governing authorities, and they, I believe, are blessed, protected by God because of our prayers. I think about Jesus and how he, he healed all of those who were brought to him. Remember this in the Gospel of Luke 4.40? And we do not read of them believing, or they had to believe in him as the Messiah first, and then he would heal them. In fact, we read just the opposite, that it says, and everybody that came to him was healed. Everybody that came to him, he, he touched them and healed, and healed them. God intervenes in the lives of unbelievers and blesses and protects them, though they would attribute it to fate, to chance, to luck, Mother Nature, whatever. They would not attribute it to a holy, awesome, sovereign God, but yet it is God. It is God behind the scenes giving blessings to believers and unbelievers alike. Grudem points out the relationship between common grace and second Peter 3.9, which I think this is very insightful and very wise as he connects common grace to the patience of God. And the scripture says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. But he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God's patience. Why is he patient toward us? Because he loves mankind. He wants mankind. He desires us to come to repentance and to come to salvation, delaying the day of wrath, if you will, out of his goodness, out of his long-suffering, out of his patience. And God is, he blesses. He blesses the, the kind, he blesses the unkind. He blesses the just and the unjust in these common areas of grace, according to Luke 6.35. And finally, Psalm 145, verse 9, which says, The Lord is good to all. How about that? Does that not convince you? <laughs> the Lord is good to all. All, and his tender mercies are over all of his works. As I wrap up this uh, section of common grace before we get into uh, election, predestination, reprobation, and those doctrines, let, let, me, let me conclude this section with responses to common grace. What, what are the responses that we as humans should have toward God for these common graces? Number one, those who receive common grace, well, first of all, does not mean that they are going to be saved. And that's a, good, that's a good, insightful comment, I think, from Dr. Grudem. Those who receive common grace does not guarantee that they will be saved. Even the most blessed, wealthy, intelligent people on earth still must receive Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Uh, good old boys won't make it into heaven. Remember that song? Good old boys won't wear a crown. Good old boys won't go to heaven where the saints of God are found. 
No, it takes more than goodness. It takes more than wisdom. It takes more than worldly knowledge. It takes more than morality. You have to be born again by the Spirit of God. And I like what Grudem says at this point. He says, our kind, blessed, unconverted neighbors will go to hell. They will go to hell unless they know uh, Jesus Christ. So common grace does not guarantee uh, salvation. Common grace just says God is good, and God lavishes his blessings upon mankind. Number two, unbelievers are able to do good things as a result of common grace. Unbelievers are able to do good as a result of common grace. I think about the book I I finished reading a few months ago, The Insanity of God uh, by Nick Ripken, powerful, powerful uh, book. And many of you are, are reading it, I understand, and enjoying it and being challenged by it as well. He points out that his best friend in Somalia, in the country of Somalia, was, was a Muslim man, was a man who did not recognize Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world. And yet, uh, Nick Ripken points out, he says, he was the best friend uh, that I have. And so it is true, unbelievers can do good things as a result of, of common grace. But here's what I really wanted to focus on. As a result, for us as believers especially, what is our re- response to the common grace of God? He makes the sun rise on the just and the unjust. He makes the rain fall on the good and the evil. God is so benevolent. He's so, he's so gracious. He's so kind in, in generalities. If you're not, not to mention, not even to mention... Uh, the cross and Jesus and his death and resurrection and the Holy Spirit of God coming. I'm talking about just common graces extended to man. Here's our, our response. It should invoke in us an utter sense of gratefulness to God, appreciation, thankfulness to God for his common grace. He grants to all unbelieving sinners untold blessings, and we are reminded of how we too are blessed as a result of these wonderful graces, such as natural beauty, societal organizations, government, protection, technological advancements, and all of these other blessings, God is gracious. God is very good to us. So that is the section on common grace that um, is in uh, systematic uh, theology. He begins uh, with this doctrine, and then he goes right into predestination and election, and that's what I'm going to do now. Even though it's inverse, it's opposite in your Smaller books, your Christian beliefs book. Okay, so let's begin with election. And I know we're not going to be able to finish uh, in the next minutes, but uh, we will wrap it up when we get back from uh, India. But let, let us at least begin looking at this doctrine of election. It refers to God's choosing to save some people even before the foundation or the creation uh, of the world. Now, Grudem, obviously, I think I've told you many times, and it's going to be extremely obvious in this lecture. Uh, that is, uh, is he is our author. I mean, he is the author of the textbook from which we are studying and teaching, and I feel like I need to do a fair and honest and balanced job in representing Wayne Grudem and what he teaches and what he believes. And he obviously clearly comes down as not a mild, but a very, uh, not a moderate, but a very strong a Calvinist when it relates to matters of election, predestination, foreknowledge, and even uh, reprobation. Now, having said that, There are people, even in this room, and there are people in our church who would agree more with Grudem Grudem, than they are going to agree with me. And by the way, I am am okay with that. I am absolutely fine with that. Uh, The only thing I would offer is this, is always have humility and always be open to what God would teach you because I, I promise you, I assure you, you may think as a strong Calvinist you have a monopoly on election, but you don't. Or... 
as an Arminian, you may, or leaning toward Arminian, you believe more in the, in the freedom of man, you may think you have a monopoly on this truth, but I assure you, you do not. None of us do because it is mysterious. Um, an antinomy is what James Packer calls it. An antinomy is where two things can seem to contradict, but they're both right. And so how can you say God is completely sovereign and he elects and he chooses and yet man has a free will? How do you say that? How can you say those two things that seem to be opposites and yet they are both absolutely biblical uh, truths? So I know some of you are going to see this differently than me and that is okay, but I do want to share with you honestly what Grudem teaches and when I disagree with him, I want to share with you what, what I believe as your, as your pastor and as your teacher uh, here. For example, he starts pretty quick in election as he talks about uh, the total depravity of man because he, obviously one of the uh, tenets of Calvinism, TULIP, in the acronym TULIP, T stands for total depravity. And he says that here is the sequence of salvation. People hear the gospel, they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, okay? Then they respond in repentance and faith God forgives them and grants them salvation. Now, that is a classic definition in soteriology, the doctrine of salvation according to a Calvinist, that man is so dead in trespasses and sins that he cannot believe and repent on his own. God regenerates him, basically gives him the new birth without him ever being cognizant of it. You say, well, that is strange. Well, I agree, that is strange, but I respect that many people believe that, many in the Calvinist and, um, you know, more Reformed tradition accept that. Another word to talk about we're going to look at is predestination. And this term is very closely associated with election. Those who are chosen by God, they are elected to salvation, all right? Or they are predestined, predetermined. And those that are not, they are predestined or predetermined to eternal damnation. Does not matter. They don't have a chance, really don't have a choice in the matter. And that is called reprobation. Now, some of you are going, whoa, wait a minute. Now, I don't know, I don't know about all this. But l- let me share. Let me, let me just go through this lecture, and then you just kind of ascertain. You think it through. You pray it through, and then you come to your own, own conclusions, okay? Here is Grudem's uh, definition of election. Election is, and I'm quoting him, it is an act of God before creation in which God chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Okay? End of quote. Now, he grants that there has been much controversy and much misunderstanding uh, over this doctrine. And it's really cool. As I read him, I think I'm understanding him well. And he has such a pastoral, spirit-filled life about him. I I can see Wayne Grudem, if he was here today and he was lecturing on this, he might say something like this. Now, hey, you may not agree with me. You may not come down where I am on this, this, this doctrine of election and predestination, but I love you anyhow, and, and I can fellowship with you. And I can, I can honestly see him saying that. Just through his readings, you see a real, uh, you see a real theologian, but you really see a spirit-filled man uh, who loves God, who believes in, in the Word of God. Okay, so does the Bible teach election? Does it teach uh, predestination? Well, absolutely, it does. And let me give you a number of verses that talk about the election of God or the predestination of God. And I'm going I'm to read these to you, beginning in Acts chapter 13. There are four of these texts. Uh, Acts 13, 48 says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad 
And they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay? That is a great example uh, of, of appointed to eternal life, uh, of elected, if you will, predestined. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, those whom he foreknew, prognosis, he also predestined. And so there it is. He predestined and conformed them to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he predestined, okay, God predestined, he called them. He, in whom he called these, he justified. In whom he uh, justified these, he also glorified. And so let me look at Romans 9, 11 through 13. Uh, For the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election, okay, according to election it might stand, not of works but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, and as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so there's three of the four verses that deal with, and and the words are are mentioned in the Bible, in election, the very words predestined and, and election. And let me give you one more, 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And I think all these verses are good uh, representative verses that talk about election. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you. He chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in, in the truth. Okay? So Grudem lists three ways the New Testament presents this doctrine of election and being predestined, being chosen by God. And he gives these three, and they're good. Number one, he says, as a comfort. The doctrine of election should give you, as a follower of Christ, a a real sense of comfort. Since God has elected and predestined us from eternity past, this is is interesting. He says, "And and in the recent past, God called us and justified us, and God promises one day to return for us and give us glorified bodies, then should we not rejoice in the fact that God will take care of us right now or today? If God has done, he's predestined us in the past, he's saved us in the recent past, uh, he's given us the promises of a resurrected, glorified body in the future, should not uh, that encourage us in the present? That if God has taken care of our past, he's taken care of our future, would he not take care of our present? That's a good word. Number two, he says it should elicit praise to God. Now, scripture links our being chosen by God to giving him praise in verses like Ephesians 1, 5, 6, and verse 12, and 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, and I'll read this one. Um, in the beginning, uh, he chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Uh, let, let's back that verse up just a little bit, Rick, because, okay, here it is. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because, you see, he's connecting the thanksgiving to the next phrase, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Okay, so praise to God. Number three, as an encouragement to evangelism. You say, what? How could Grudem say that being elected and chosen and predestined is an impetus for evangelism. And uh, he is in the line of a Charles Haddon Spurgeon or a Jonathan Edwards or a 
uh, John Piper or Matt Chandler, some of these guys today, who they would absolutely agree with what Grudem is teaching. And they would say, yes, it is a powerful motive for evangelism for us as Christians to share our faith. And here's what he means by that. We are encouraged to um, share because we know that God will save. God will save, and of course they say God will save the elect. And he references God, uh, Paul's enduring this for the sake of the elect in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Okay, so I think I've done a fair job of sharing what, what Grudem teaches on election, his, his perspective, the biblical references to it, and the, even the blessings or the benefits of it, uh, if you will. So let me, let me talk to you just a, a little bit about election and fatalism. And I'll talk to you a little bit about such things as election and foreknowledge and election and man's free will. And again, we're not going to finish all this in 15 minutes, but we're going to get well into it. And next week, excuse me, next week, when I'm back with you, Lord willing, we will get right back into this great uh, lecture or this great lesson, this doctrine. Okay. One of the challenges people put forward against election is it's fatalistic or it's mechanistic. Or since all, it's already decided and what is going to happen, who will be elect, who will not, well, then why does it matter? There's a sense of fatalism. Uh, why, why does anything matter if everything's predetermined or predisposed? And Grudem counters these objections with numerous Bible verses that teach the responsibility for us not only to share, to witness, but for us to respond. Uh, he quotes verses like Ezekiel 33, 11, which is a powerful verse. And I laugh when I mention this because uh, one of the men that uh, was in my class when I taught seminary is a strong, strong Calvinist, and he, he, he quickly began to realize that I was not as strong in Calvinism as he was, and he got very angry about that. And he told me, in fact, he said, the verse that gives me the most difficult time as a Calvinist in the entire Bible is Ezekiel 33, 11, and I could tell he was really upset about this. He was almost upset that God put this in the Bible because it messed up his theological framework. Can I say again, any framework that you have that does not allow God's Word to penetrate it, that is a faulty a framework, whatever your framework is, Arminian, Calvinistic, Reformed or not, you've got to be able to say, there is mystery here. There is truth beyond me because look, look what it says. Say to them that this is God speaking. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways for why should you die, O house of Israel? God says, I don't... I have no pleasure in the, in the death of the wicked, and yet God chooses and he predestines. You scratch your head, go, whoa, that's interesting. And Grudem says, let me give you another one. Revelation twenty two seventeen. it says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears, not and let all the elect, but let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirst, let him come, whoever desires. You with me? Whoever Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Grudem says, and I quote him, We certainly must preach the gospel, and people's eternal destiny hinges on whether we proclaim the gospel or not. <laughs> How about that? Okay, in light of all that I just shared with you earlier, 
he says this very passionately that we must preach the gospel. People's eternal destiny hinges on the fact that whether we preach the gospel or not. Paul did not know who the elect were, and so, Grudem says, he just proclaimed to everybody, and he preached to everybody to respond, and Grudem says, and those who responded, they were the elect. Interesting. It is. It's fascinating to me, this, this whole doctrine of election predestination. Well, let me get into B here, and this is election and foreknowledge, and Grudem goes to great lengths, many pages, to uh, state his position on foreknowledge because this is where, if you're more like me and you're, more, uh, you don't, you're not a real strict Reformed or Calvinist, you place a lot of validity and stock in foreknowledge and yet uh, the strict adherence to Calvinism do not. Foreknowledge basically is this. God foreknew what you were going to do and based on him knowing what you were going to do, whether you were going to believe or not believe, God chose you. God elected you. Uh, I remember when I was really walking through this and processing this uh, in, in the late 90s, in the 1990s as I was teaching, uh, I remember going to Dr. Patterson's office and because that student had already reported me to, to the president, but I didn't get in any trouble. In fact, we talked about this in, in depth, and I said, Dr. Patterson, I'm just going to put this really simply how I believe it. I do not know exactly where you are on this, but here's what I believe, and it's very simple, but I believe that God knew in advance, and based on his knowledge of whether we were going to believe or not, he chose us or he didn't, and Dr. Patterson says that is precisely what, what I believe. And many of you believe that, and many of you, I know, uh, many of you uh, do not believe that. So let's unpack it best we can. Let's walk through this whole concept of foreknowledge and, and election. And so, um, again, it's mentioned, 1 Peter, I think it's 1, 2, and then again, Romans eight twenty nine. this word prognosis, uh, foreknowledge, is used in the Bible as it relates to uh, election. Now, Grudem spends a good portion of his chapter refuting what I just shared with you. Okay, he goes into great depth in disagreeing with me and refuting what I just shared with you, saying, no, 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 you cannot say that because it gives mankind too much in the equation. Uh, he says it gives man too much credit and it limits God's involvement. He says man will make this decision on his own and to him this gives man way too much credit. Now remember, he believes that you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit before you can ever believe. Now, by the way, I do not find that in Scripture, and I've yet to find a Calvinist who can show me in Scripture specifically that the Holy Spirit will give you the new birth, and then you will believe and repent, and God will, uh, God will save you. Okay? He argues that God uh, foreknew persons and not facts about them like the fact that he knew they would believe. You with me? He says, no, no, no. It's not some fact that God knew about you, whether you were going to believe or not. No, it's just God knew you. He foreknew you, and he chose you. He argues that God simply knew them in advance whom he would elect, as Romans 8, 29, he says, says nothing about God foreknowing that certain would believe or not, or facts about them. He disagrees with Karl Barth, for example, who says that God foreknew the groups of people, or great numbers of people, not necessarily individuals. And Grudem rightfully corrects him and says that's not what Scripture teaches. It does not say that God 
elected an entire a group into salvation in Christ, but individuals. Now, an argument could be made for Israel, and I get that, that God elected. He chose the nation of Israel to be a missionary people uh, for the Gentiles. Okay. I thought of the uh, objection that uh, my evangelism professor made when I was in seminary, and he was not a Calvinist by any stretch of the imagination, and he said uh, he believes that God foreordained or God chose the process of salvation, not the people of salvation. For example, God ordained that everybody who's saved will have to go through the cross of Christ, and God foreknew that, he elected that, he predestined that process, and Dr. Malcolm McDowell genuinely believed that. However, I disagree with him on that. I think Grudem has a very powerful argument. He says, well, Scripture never talks about God ordaining a process, but God ordaining and foreknowing and electing a person or people not necessarily the process. Now, again, you've got to keep in context whenever the Bible mentions election, predestination, it, does, it is talking about people. Now, of course, God did forever decree that anybody who's saved has to come through uh, the cross. Okay, now Grudem, he's going to argue that Romans 9, uh, and by the way, Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, it's, it's very interesting. It's very powerful, I think, arguments for a more classic case for Reformed theology. Uh, just like Ezekiel 33 and John 3.16, 1 Peter 2.9, those verses make powerful classical arguments against Calvinism. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 makes powerful arguments for, for it. So he says, uh, the Bible teaches nothing um, Esau or Jacob would do to influence God choosing Jacob over Esau. You with me? He didn't see any belief or unbelief in them. He just chose Jacob, and he did not choose Esau. And I agree with this in that what it teaches. However, choosing Jacob to me to be the one through whom he would work and thus bring about the nation of Israel did not mean that he had no purpose or no plan for, for Esau. And the same could be said of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac, obviously, is the son of promise. He is the one that God chose through whom the nation of Israel uh, would be blessed. He did not choose Ishmael in Genesis chapter 16. But when you read Genesis 16, even though God did not choose him to be the father, if you will, uh, of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? But Esau, God says very clearly, I will bless you. I will make a great uh, nation uh, out of you. Grudem argues that faith would be a work, okay? He argues that faith, belief, would be a work, and man then would have something to do in the salvation process. Therefore, he cannot uh, allow that in his doctrine of, of election, okay? He just believes that you're, you're regenerated, then you will believe and repent, but that's all God-initiated, God-ordained, and, and not yours. He equates simple belief in Christ as something meritorious in us. Let me say that again. Uh, Grudem says simple faith or trust in Christ uh, is meritorious in us, but I don't see it that way. I see it as man choosing to believe or man choosing not to believe um, is just simply a, a, a human ability, a human capability that God in His common grace gave to us that we could believe or we could choose not to believe. I do believe that salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. He is the one who initiates it. He is the one who invites it. 
in the one that culminates it, but he does give man a choice. It is his kindness, amen, Romans 2, 4, that enables us to repent and, and to believe. Absolutely accept that. Uh, Grudem sees 2 Timothy 1, 9, where Paul says we are saved not in virtue of our works, as us doing absolutely nothing, not even believing. <clears throat> okay? Uh, so you see where, see where he is on this. The very fact that you would repent and believe, uh, and let's say God knew that in advance and then he chose you, then he says, no, I can't, I can't say that because that's given mankind too much in this uh, whole doctrine of, of salvation. But to me, belief and faith are not works. In fact, I think they're just the opposite of works. I look at it like this, that God in his kindness leads me to believe and repent, and I do or I don't based upon my will. Does God know what I'm going to do? Absolutely. God knows everything. And again, I'm sharing with you my bias. Based on that knowledge, then God uh, chooses and he elects and predestines. Okay? Let me keep going here. We've got just a few more minutes. All right. He believes. And when I I say he, y'all know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Grudem. He's the author of our uh, textbook. Some of y'all are looking at me like, did you not know he was a strong Calvinist before you chose this as a textbook? Yes, I knew this. Uh, but, and that's one of the reasons I did choose this textbook, because I wanted somebody that disagreed with me in this area, because I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn from them, and I have learned uh, from him. So anyhow, he refers to Grudem, believes that if God chose us based on his foreknowledge, then we would believe uh, that we had so much to do with it that we would become prideful and, uh, and we would boast that we chose Christ while others are in inferior to us because they did not choose Christ. So he sees that as leaning toward arrogance or pride. He believes that those who um, would believe would see it as we were chosen because of our tendencies toward faith and belief within ourselves, okay? Now, again, he's a classic Calvinist debating the total depravity of man. Apart from being regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you cannot believe or repent, period. That's what Grudem uh, believes. Absolutely do not believe that. I believe Romans 2, 1, when it says that we are spiritually dead, that nothing good is within us. I believe that. You are dead in trespasses and sins. And I've heard the arguments, by the way. How can dead people do anything? Well, I believe we're so dead in trespasses and sin, unless God the Holy Spirit convicts us and draws us, then there's no way we can believe or repent. It's His kindness that leads us uh, to repentance. God comes to us by His Holy Spirit. He invites us to believe, and we do so or we do not based upon our volition. And Grudem says, no, based upon the eternal decrees uh, of God. God knows all along who will believe and who will not. Uh, Grudem nullifies and disputes any action of man in the salvation equation. For man to believe he argues, means he has some goodness or proclivity in him to believe, and therefore that would minimize God. That would minimize the sovereignty of God. But I don't see it that way. God gives us a free will. Okay? God gives us a choice. We say yes or no. Uh, not that we are good. Not that we have any goodness apart from Christ, but it's just part of being created in the image of God. We have the capacity to choose or to believe or choose not to believe. Okay, I'm almost finished with this section of uh, foreknowledge and election. I've got one more, one more paragraph. 
Uh, Grudem champions the U in tulip. By the way, he champions all the T-U-L-I-P. Total depravity, uh, unlimited, uh, unconditional, excuse me, election. God chooses us based on his sovereign will and grace and not on anything we do, not even our faith. Okay? Uh, I do see, however, at times in the scripture where God did this. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, God says, Jeremiah, I've chose you. You're mine. And God did. Je- Jeremiah really didn't have a choice. He cho- God said, I chose you before. You're in the womb. I ordained you a prophet of the nation. Now, did Jeremiah believe in God? Yes. Did Jeremiah become a great prophet? He didn't have a choice. He was going to God in his sovereignty said, you're going to do this. John the Baptist is another, filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. Hello? That's, that's a powerful statement. God, God chose them. Now, uh, another example could be in the Bible would be Samuel, uh, the prophet. But every time I see this dynamic choosing of God, it, it, it seems to be connected to me with a greater purpose that they would bear witness for God, that they would be a light unto others so that they could know God. I always tie election and predestination to evangelism. I always do. That God has elected us. He has chosen us. He knew this. He predestined us. And I believe that is a very intrinsically connected with evangelism and missions that we, we share, we, we tell others, if you will. Okay, so the next section we're going to look at uh, is election and man's uh, free will. And, uh, and then after that, we're going to look at the doctrine of reprobation. And then we're going to give some closing thoughts on it. And um, so reprobation, that's, that's a tough one. In fact, Grudem says it's the toughest of all the doctrines that we as Christians uh, have to believe, is what he says. That God chooses some to damnation, period. God chose them to be damned, okay? And uh, he will go there, and he will believe that. And, uh, and if you follow him all the way through in his syllogism of Calvinism, then you too will have to come to that conclusion that some people don't even have a choice, that God chose them unto damnation. Grudem would say, so what? Look at all the people that he did choose, and you'd be grateful because you're one of the chosen. To which I would respond, what if I wasn't? What if you weren't? It wouldn't be so good news then. Well, anyhow, um, I know I've shared with you my bias, and I believe I've shared uh, Grudem, and I know you're going to come out one or the other, and, and I want you to. I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to struggle with this. And if you get to the point where you say, I just cannot figure it out completely, I would say, amen, good for you. I can't either, and I don't think anybody can figure it out completely. Let me pray for you as you go to work. As you go uh, uh, back to your homes or whatever you're going to do, let me pray for you right now. Father, thank you so much for uh, your mysterious uh, person and how awesome you are in past finding out completely. God, we as mere mortals cannot wrap our minds around some things such as the Trinitarian God that you are, such as the two complete divine human natures in one person, or the election and predestination and foreknowledge and, and all of this, God, there's so much we don't know, so much we can't understand, and some things we can. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless these that are here today, and I ask you to guide them, and would you lead them, Lord, even as they leave this place, to just be more in love with you, worshiping you with their minds, and also, God, as you give them opportunity that they would share the good news of the gospel, knowing, God, that you have saved them, and you have saved them for a holy 
calling and a purpose, and that is to be a light, to be salt in this world, in a world that so very much needs you. So, Lord, I ask you to bless us and bless our team, and even now as we're in India, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.